We talked about some of the you know the coaching news of yesterday, but there was some some actual sports. There were some sports on last night, and you know, uh, my friends, we, we went out and we played some trivia, and they actually went and tracked down the the people running the TVs to get on the women's basketball game, which I thought was maybe kind of a <laughs> I don't want to say a joke at first, but I was just kind of like, wait, what? Like, this guy's like, where's the game at? I was like, what game are you talking about? And they went right in front, and then I was watching. I was like, you know what? It was a pretty fun game last night with with LSU and South Carolina as as South Carolina made a big comeback in the second half to kind of just chase down LSU and beat them. I got to admit, I watched a decent amount of that game. I uh, It was good. It was really good. They played at a high level. Um Kim Mulkey was doing her Kim Mulkey thing with her funky outfits, and it was uh, you can always count on that. But no, it was a great game. It was a great game. South Carolina just seems, you know, it reflects their coach. Um, you know, you got Mulkey in this like Vegas-looking Siegfried and Roy vibe outfit, and then you got Don Staley in a hoodie, you know, basically. And I, I just think the team reflects her her whole vibe. They, they're just gritty. Sam, did you find yourself watching the game as well? I did, yeah. Wow. I watched the second half. Look least. at us. Support women's basketball. <laughs> I was, right. I was watching Rough and Rowdy and uh, <laughs> and the women's basketball game, yeah. it was. I thought it was pretty solid too, though. I mean, yeah, LSU kind of was controlling the pace a little bit in the first half and went up at half, and South Carolina had a, a big SEC road winning streak and, and – you know, clawed back late in the second half and and got the win. I was I, entertained. I did talk. I, I exchanged texts with uh, Jake Miller, aka GI Jake, um, who's a big uniform nut, and I'm kind of that way too. And this is so minor, but it was it did catch my eye. I've never seen a men's or women's basketball jersey that had like it had South Carolina stacked as the name on the jersey on the front of the jersey not south number carolina tennessee number of volunteers or it, it was i don't know if i noticed that and yeah, some people don't you know people would look at me and say you know it's kind of a nerdy observation <laughs> yeah, i was gonna say the non-nerds don't notice that <laughs> but jake jake knew nerd and, and jake <laughs> jake uh he agreed he said it looked like trash wow. so he went, he went a little further than i did i was just Kind of. Well, I'm glad you got you an outlet to uh, voice those things with with Jake. Just oh, keep, we, yeah, keep it in your private text message. <laughs> we talk uniforms all the time, man. It's awesome. I, I'm glad you have somebody to do that. That way, you don't send it to to the morning show group text. Oh, I wouldn't. Yeah, it's that's that's a little too sophisticated for you guys. You don't care about. That's true. That. When I think of sophistication, I think of GI Jake. So there, <laughs> there you go. I'm, I'm glad you have a finer things club that you can uh, that you can turn to here at, at Fan Run Radio. What else do we have? We had Arizona, a top 10 team going down to Oregon State. They were big favorites of that game and kind of, not kind of, just uh, Oregon State beat them. Oregon State beat them, and uh, I didn't watch any of that game, but it was a news and noteworthy thing. The story, though, that I found uh, to be most interesting from yesterday was the Kayshawn Booty stuff. Yeah. Do, you, do you guys keep up with oh, that yeah. at all? Yeah, break it down. I mean, I'm uh, headline-wise, I'm very familiar with it, but... Kayshawn Booty, a former LSU wide receiver, who was really disappointing last year. Now we know why he was so disappointing last year, because he was stressed from all of his gambling. Uh, you, they, they talk about gambling addictions. They talk about the wear and tear it has on your life. 
and, and you saw it firsthand from Kayshawn Booty. Because he came in as th- thought of as like the best receiver in the country, or at least like one of. And then he left the year as like a seventh-round flyer pick by the New England Patriots. That's how bad he was. And it started in game one of last year, which coincidentally was a game that he bet on himself <laughs> to ball out in. And he came out and was awful. I remember vividly that game, how bad he was in that game, dropping passes. So when I saw that he was gambling, I was like, oh, man, uh, hopefully we don't have our first instance where a player is just, like, betting against the team and betting against himself. But And then uh, to add criminality to it, he was doing it underage and was using fake names but making his username Kayshawn Booty, Kayshawn Booty 7. So he wasn't hiding it very well either. But, yeah, they had him making, what, Sam, like 9,000 bets or something crazy like that? Over 8,900? Yeah. That's a crazy amount. Yeah. Crazy amount. For an SEC football player <laughs> in a 13-month span. Now, have we seen dollar amounts of that, I saw of those 8,900? I saw that he, like, deposited 50K or something like that, or my maybe man 10K. Took his, my man took his NIL money and went straight to FanDuel. <laughs> and then I saw that, like... Over half a million had been like cycled through his account. Not that he sure. had won that, but it had like cycled through that in terms of. Well, his you deposit, you win a little bets. bit, you end up losing it, things right, like that. Right. I mean, it, it adds up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then you know he was out there making eight leg parlays. Which, on one hand, when I saw the news, like I said, I thought, oh man, we're we about to have our first uh, tanking story where he is fixing the games in a bad way. But then I was thinking, like, okay, when you go to Louisiana. When Tennessee went to Louisiana last year, you you get to bet on player props mm-hmm. in college football. Tennessee actually doesn't allow you to do that. And I was kind of thinking like, huh, it's always been a little annoying and a little frustrating, but maybe this is why. Because the college kids may be more willing to risk it all and gamble <laughs> On their teammates or on themselves, whereas the pros may be a little bit more cautious. Because, yeah, you had Kayshawn Booty for the first time that I've seen, at least, a player being linked to betting on himself and on his own team. That's pretty amazing. Now, I'm listening to you guys reading the story in detail. Well, the game that he bet himself over, he bet himself to score a touchdown and to have, I think, over 84 yards. He came out and had two for 20. He was awful. He had two catches for 20 yards that game. And I wonder how stressed he was on the sideline. Was he like, hey, Jaden, throw me the ball. And Jaden's like, I am. You keep dropping it. Like, come on, man. Just give me one. One long one. Throw me a bomb here. That's interesting, though. Betting on himself, but not betting like in any sort of tank fashion, you know, actually putting in some high numbers. He's like, hey, give me the ball. Yeah. Yeah, it could have been the the Arizona State basketball point shaving right, right. Uh, scandal there. Now, it said the one, you know, bet that I saw, that was the only one I saw that kind of highlighted. And it says like an eight-game parlay or eight-leg eight leg parlay. So, like, I guess he was betting on some of his teammates and, and maybe LSU to win. I haven't seen the actual details from that. Have there been any, Sam? I haven't I, seen that either. Yeah, yeah. I just saw them highlight that he had bet on himself to have catches and that he failed to get it. <laughs> but 8,900 wagers yeah. with at least 17 of those 8,900 being gone – NCAA football games, and at least six that involved LSU. 
I've got the numbers here now. It says, uh, according to the warrant, Boutte deposited a total of just over $132,000, won a total of just over $556,000, but used most of that money to make additional bets. He withdrew just over fifty dollars from the account. Okay, so he lost eighty dollars Yeah, yeah. Wow. So he put the NIL money to use. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's uh that's that's some uh that's some impressive stuff. Yeah, I wonder what that's gonna do for his career. You know, I, I don't know if it derails it in New England. It didn't feel like he was a factor at all this year. Like I don't even know how many games he was active with the Patriots. Like I don't know what his stats were. It, it seemed like he was a complete non factor. But yeah, man, like he went from a top first round pick type of guy to now just kind of a punchline. That's pretty tough. In the NFL, you know, they have the whenever you had the players gambling and getting in trouble. Except for Calvin Ridley and the one Arizona defensive back a hang, you know, a couple years ago. We didn't really have them betting on NFL games, right? I know one of the Colts guys had bet on uh an over for Jonathan Taylor. So I guess there's been a couple, but yeah. a lot of the issues are just like, hey, you're gambling on team facilities, not so much gambling on the sport. And they're allowed now to to bet on other sports and everything. And in the NCAA, that's not the case. The NCAA prohibits players from wagering on any sport. And then, you know, you have found to, uh, when you wager on your team in school, it's even worse, which is what he did. But, I mean, he's gone now, so, like, I don't know what the NCAA can even do with this. But yeah. I, I enjoyed the uh, the story coming out. I mean, just the breakdown of the numbers is crazy to me. That's that's what I was saying earlier. Impressive. It's like how this is a this is a collegiate athlete, an elite one that's probably spending a lot of time playing and everything else. It's like almost like where do you find the time to do all that? Six hundred and eighty five uh, bets a month, twenty three a day. I mean, right, so he's, placing, he's placing a bet an hour. Twenty three a day. Well, I assume he's not doing one an hour as much as he is just putting. Like maybe you know, Fanduel pops up. I don't know if anybody listening has has been on the app long enough for them to pop up. Reality check. Yes, you have wagered X amount of dollars over the last X amount of time. Okay, so I'm booty. Reality check. You have wagered seven hundred and thirty five dollars over the last thirteen minutes on, on on twenty different bets. FanDuel may have sent somebody to his apartment in person to knock on the door and say, dude, what is happening here? You know? Or to thank him. I mean they might have <laughs> Yeah, or to thank him. Well they might have they might have they might have drawn some attention. Like I don't know, I haven't seen the news, but those sites do have VIP like you know, concierges that reach out right. to you and have reps like, Hello, Mr. whatever your fake name is. Uh who are your favorite teams? Are there is there anything we could get you like? Do you like concerts to t- you know take us to concerts, take us to games? What do you like? It's like, well, I love the LSU Tigers. <laughs> I love the LSU Tigers. My favorite player is Jaden Daniels and and, and Kayshawn Booty. I just he was so disappointing, and you know, it it, it, it makes it worse. It makes it worse. The twenty three <laughs> bets a day is pretty impressive. I would, especially when you tell me the dollar figure. Yeah, the twenty-three bets a day could just be a whole bunch of random like ten-team parlays and player things like lottery tickets. But he was actually putting some money down. He wasn't doing it that way. He he was he was risking hundreds and hundreds of dollars per bet, probably maybe thousands. I'm sure there were a couple. I would be interested in knowing like if you bet one hundred and thirty thousand dollars, or excuse me, you deposited one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Do these like what was the court cases bet? or whatever? Do you think they find a way to like go through what he was betting on 
Well, like, we I had would be some very de- interested to see. We had that some happened. details, but like I think the dollar amounts aren't going to matter because I think it's just going to be the crime and the the violation of the rules is that what's going to get him. Like one dollar to them is breaking the law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, doing so underage and. And if you're the NCAA, one bet on LSU in college football violates that. It wouldn't even be the dollar amount that matters. So I don't know if we'll ever get those. I wonder what sports he's betting on too. Like if you're betting that many, that many things, like it's not just going to be your oh, no. mill power sports. <laughs> you you want to know what the most random thing Casey yeah, Moody was I betting do. on was he was he sweating Chinese basketball yeah. and he found himself <laughs> in the table tennis section yes. D- darts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how bad did he have it? <laughs> those, it sounds like he had it pretty bad. Yeah, those, uh, he needs to call it Tennessee Red Line or I guess Louisiana Red Line, whatever yep. they have down there. Those professional cornhole tournaments that we see on ESPN. Um, I, I, the numbers just blow my mind. Tennessee, of course, went to LSU last year and beat them down. That was one of Josh Heupel's biggest wins. Where would you rank it? You know, it's probably... Number three? Is it in the top three? Like You could say Orange Bowl. You could say Alabama, of course, number one. Maybe you get Florida, the edge, last year. But, I mean, LSU is in that conversation. You know, for that. Top five. Yeah. See, I man, I think LSU might be number two just because it was down there. Of course, it was a day game, but nobody expected that to just be a blowout. I mean, that was, that was an absolute beatdown. I mean, I remember Brian Kelly saying at halftime, I'm getting out coached. I mean, he was just like, you know, well, at I, a loss. I just remember how desperate he was in that game. I mean, yeah. just the fourth downs. And I mean, like, he was not wrong, but I mean, like, he was just got to go for every fourth down because we can't stop these guys. But that was Tennessee's kind of we're legit moment. I so agree. if you tell me that that was the second biggest win, I necessarily wouldn't argue with you because I, I always talk about the bowl games being a little overrated. The LSU one was fun there. You overtook the stadium. And, and again, it kind of propelled you to – do some special things against Alabama coming up. If you lose that LSU game, you probably don't beat Alabama. But that was Josh Heupel, one of his best wins. Josh Heupel is now through his third season. CBS Sports went, and you said ranked or graded? They graded. Graded, okay. So we're not talking about who the best of the coaches finishing their third year at their school are, but we're grading them. We'll see what CBS Sports gives Josh Heupel and some of his peers. Coming up after the break, it's the morning show here on Fan Run Radio. It is Friday. That makes it the perfect day to enjoy some White Claw Hard Seltzer. Pick you up some to kick off your weekend today. And drink responsibly. White Claw Hard Seltzer. All right, so CBS Sports graded Josh Heupel and his performance after three years. Before we get to his grades, who are some of the other names that are peers of his? Yes, we'll uh, we'll talk about Power Five coaches, and then there's a couple interesting Group of Five coaches. One that has a former tie to Tennessee, and then a couple that will have some SEC ties here shortly. Um, but starting with the Power Five. A name that's been in the headlines lately, Jed Fish, uh, now the head coach at Washington, but spent three years at Arizona. His record was 16-21. and 21. Obviously had a great third season there, which is what laid the groundwork for him to get the Washington gig. They graded him out at a B. Six- Jed Fish, I mean, to me, I, mean, I, I guess a B, but he far exceeded 
my expectations for what he did. Yeah, I think they're probably dinging him for whatever happened in his, you know, he had a 10-win season this year, but which obviously means he only had 16 wins in three seasons, so the preceding two weren't too good. But, yo, he did an amazing job this year. This would be closer to an A had Fish stayed at Arizona, they write. So they're 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 docking him for taking a better job. Yeah, they do a little of that in here. And okay, we'll yeah we'll see that later in the in the the body of work. Uh, Brett Bielema at Illinois, which I felt I felt two seasons ago that was like a marriage made in heaven, but it's not been that good. His three year record there's eighteen and nineteen, just one bowl appearance. I'll be honest, the only thing that I can remember Brett Bielema doing so far at Illinois is closely losing to Michigan last year. Right. I guess the only only thing I remember from him him, him doing. I understand it's Illinois. They're not you know very relevant. But I forget Brett Bielema is even there yeah. at times. Yeah. Well, they graded him at a B-. minus. Um, so, moving on. The next guy got an A minus, and that's Lance Leipold, uh, or Leipold at Kansas. We talked about him yesterday as a potential name in the Michigan hunt, although it seems like kind of a foregone conclusion. Sharon Moore is probably going to get that job, but Leipold's done a great job at Kansas. 17 and 21 record, but his first season was 2 and 10. So if you take it out from there, 15 and 11 over the last two seasons. Maybe, maybe I'm not cut out to be a teacher. Because I don't understand how he's just on an A or an, even an A plus for what he's done at Kansas. Like Jed Fish, B plus, Bielema getting a B minus seems too high. Maybe give him a C. But like, how, how are we not giving Lance an A for what he's done at Kansas? They they beat Oklahoma in a big game. Like it wasn't a game they snuck up and and clipped Oklahoma. Like it was one that you kind of circled. And he took his backup quarterback and beat Oklahoma last year. Yeah. Well, they're giving him an A minus, but I agree. I think it was even better. A plus. Yeah. He did a good job. That's uh, that's been a barren wasteland from a coaching standpoint for a while, as far as Kansas football. So I agree with that. They had been in zero bowl games from 2009 to 2020. They've made it twice in three years. They hadn't been ranked inside the AP top 25 since 2007, and he got them there this year. I don't know. I, if I'm him, I'm like, what the hell else could I do? A minus, what are you digging me for? <laughs> Not keeping my quarterback healthy? Because, by the way, a lot of our success last year was with a backup quarterback. Anyways. Well, this next one, I would say I am kind of stunned that they even graded him this high. This is our friend, precious Shane Beamer. Okay, Shane Beamer. 20 and 18 over three seasons. Is that uh, higher or lower than you would have thought, Sam? Twenty and eighteen over three seasons for Beamer. Mm, about I think right. That's about right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it is right. So I guess I guess you're correct. He there. feels really average over yeah. his career. Okay. He's had wins over Tennessee. Hate to say it. Texas A&M, Auburn, Clemson, and Kentucky two times. Um, they gave him a B grade. I guess that might be okay. I I just have such dislike for him. Maybe that's why I'm wanting to see a lower score. I don't understand how he would have a B, uh, quite frankly. I mean, I, I don't – I guess if you're giving extra credit for beating Tennessee, for spoiling their season and then following that up with Clemson. But, like, if you simply uh, – they can keep the wins because he won them. They're big wins. But, like, I feel like if you simply broke them up 
and just said like they did they weren't in the same like you know seven day span. I think that would drastically alter our perception of Shane Beamer because, like, it, we give him credit for back-to-back top 10 wins and, oh, my God, they're going to turn the corner and this, this, and this. But, like, if you just tell me he beat one one year and won the other or, or, you know, got one at the beginning of the year and one at the end of the year and still had the same records, I think we'd look at it differently. To me, he's been perfectly average. I'd give him a C. Yeah, I, I, I just everything about him, you know, the, the crying at the drop of a hat, the just – uh, it's hard for me to he has had some pretty significant wins but still like it's just hard for me to picture him as a a grade of a b he's had two significant wins i mean i don't texas a and whatever like I, I don't know what this what the scenario was there i assume it was at south carolina i assume it was but like i i don't care about that win he beat tennessee he beat clemson that's all he's hanging his hat on. He he ruined their postseason aspirations, right? Yeah, Both yeah. He, of them. he accomplished that. And, you know, those – Tennessee might be South Carolina's second biggest rival. I mean, I know for a while Georgia was. I don't know where they rank them. Clemson, obviously, number one. But, like, he delivered on two big games for them. But even then, like this year, if you go through and, – and I like doing this – any national or, like, you know, SEC regional story – I like going through the replies and just reading what South Carolina fans or fans of the teams are saying, whoever the story's about. And a lot of South Carolina fans don't like Beamer anymore. Like you go through something after a loss or a story or a, one of his press conferences, you'll, you'll have plenty of people saying, you know, this isn't going well or, or like this guy's kind of losing it. And to me, you can't get a B grade if, you're, if, that, if I'm saying that about you. Keeping it in the SEC, uh, Vanderbilt, Clark Lee, three seasons. And he did have a moment where it looked like things were turning around. I think it was not this past season, the season before that. Nine mm-hmm. and 27 over three seasons. What was that moment? I don't remember that moment. Well, they beat so. Florida. They beat Kentucky. Okay. Um, okay. I'd, I, I almost back-to-back. I guess I wasn't paying attention to that, but I had no clue they'd beaten Florida and Kentucky. Yeah, it was. That's sad for Florida and Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, the, and Clark Lee did a little of his uh, Shane Beamer there. I remember him getting misty uh, in the interviews after the game. It was kind of a big moment. But he grades out as a C minus. I don't know how you could argue that. That might be kind. That's, that team this year was so, so much of a non factor, even more so than it usually is. It felt like, even though they did come into Tennessee, into Knoxville, and kind of. You know, throw some punches at the beginning. Literally. Yeah. yeah. Literally. Yeah. That, that was the game. I remember there was just a whole bunch of personal fouls and people losing right. their mind. I, I don't know how to grade him just because he's at Vanderbilt. You know, I, I know we're talking about just Power 5 coaches, but to me he's not even a Power 5 coach. Yeah. I mean, I know by definition, of course, he is. But, like, I don't know what you're supposed to do there that you could do any better than what he's done. Former SEC guy Gus Malzahn at Central Florida. Wrapped up his third season, twenty-four and sixteen record over three seasons. Um, they're in the Big Twelve now. Really impressive win this season over Oklahoma State when Oklahoma State was supposedly dialed in, um, and uh, they take care of their business in non-conference. They're nine and two in the regular season in non-conference play since Malzahn arrived. They give him a grade of a B. I actually would maybe grade that a little higher myself you grade it higher i was gonna say i grade it lower because i feel like ucf it's kind of irrelevant now 
Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but like you know, their star has definitely fallen, of course, from the Scott Frost time. Uh, that, that's to be expected when you're no longer going undefeated. But like even the, from the Josh Heupel time, and maybe Josh Heupel's a little bit of the reason why they have you know their, their stars kind of faded. But like I don't ever think of UCF anymore, and I feel like Gus has been a little bit of a disappointment there because I thought he was you know giving him those resources at Central Florida to recruit, like, I, I thought he was going to be much better than he has been. Yeah, if you span this out over three seasons, kind of an 8-5 and five average record, I would agree with that. Maybe And, and only, one year in, only one year in the Big 12, right? That's correct. Just so, I mean, like, it's year. not like he had to go to the Big 12 and play better competition. Like, his first two years inside the American was 9-4 and 9-5. and five. Like, to me, those are kind of disappointing. Yeah. And then 6-7 and seven this year – I'll give him a little bit of a pass just because it's their first year playing Power 5 competition, but it's not like the Big 12 is the SEC. So for me, I'd give Malzahn a – I would actually give him a C-. minus. It's interesting. So, uh, yeah, the, the perception that you say you think it's a little low and I think it's kind of way too high, maybe the, the truth's somewhere in the middle. I, I don't know, but I – th- I just – I think maybe what I associate it with, too, is what hasn't changed with them is their, their product. Um, so – I always still look to them as a team, you know, high-octane offense, score a lot of points. You're right, had a losing record this year, first season in the Big 12. But maybe that's weighing too heavily in my mind, I don't know, because I, I do I do love the, the high-scoring teams. I will say that. I like to follow those. Um, Steve Sarkeesian. Got him an A, you know, gets them to the playoff. Yeah. I don't think you could do any complaining with him. He hasn't. Had any big booster meltdowns. He's got the boys falling in line, singing the eyes of Texas after the game. They're not going to fire him for not getting them to sing the alma mater. So he's got the culture under control for now. We'll see how the SEC transition goes. Let's get to the main event. Let's get what the people are here for. Third year finished for Josh Heupel as he made the switch from Central Florida to Tennessee. 27-12. and 12. They give him an A grade. I think that's, um, I think that's fair. Um, I and if it was before, if it was based on a two-year sample, um, it would have been an A plus from in my book. This season was a little bit of a, little bit of a letdown. Not a massive one, but that's what I would, uh, in my mind, that's why I would keep it at an A. You would give it an A plus for the two-year sample of this year and last year, or the first two years? First two. Okay. Think about that first season when I mean I was expecting. Four wins, maybe. You uh-huh. know, that was felt like they totally overperformed, and then obviously the second season was pretty magical, with the exception of that South Carolina game. Um, I think those seasons, and, and so what that did was set up expectations for this season, um, which may have been unreal. I don't, I, not realistic. I don't know, but it was to me this third season was a little bit of a letdown. Doesn't mean I've given up the ghost on Josh Heupel. I just think it's. Yeah, we we need a reset next year, and I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. Sam, you good with the letter grade of an A for Josh Heupel after three years? Yeah, I think A's fine for him through three years. I mean, I think Bob's right. I think he took a little bit of a downturn this year, but I think that's just kind of due to a, a little bit of a dip in quarterback play. I think you'll be right back to to where you were at in the first two, so I think A's perfectly fine. I'd probably go with an A minus. I'd probably knock it half a you know half a letter grade. Just because Sarkeesian made the playoffs, he's an A. 
He was our only A on there, right? Our only straight up A. I know there was a A minus for yeah, you're right, for Lance Leopold. So like the 2022 season, that was an A season. the The 2021 season to me was probably an A minus season, maybe a B plus. I really think you should have won that Ole Miss game, but like, I'm not gonna you know hold that one game against Josh. That, that's fine. The 2023 season to me was a C. So to me, like it's hard for me to say you get an A for all three years, when you get an A plus for one year, a B plus, and a a C. It kind of doesn't average out to me to be an A. You'd call last year, not this season that passed, but the twenty one twenty two season, no twenty two twenty three season, a B plus. No, no, no. Uh, the first year I give a B plus. Two thousand twenty one. Okay. Year one of Josh Hype, I give a B plus. You, if you say A minus, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, the second year, the you know the year you go eleven and two, I, I give that an A, I gotcha. an, even okay. an A plus. I mean, you could probably say I, you, you choke against South Carolina. I don't know what how the hell that happened, what was going on in the locker room, whatever. Like, so if you want to tell me it's not an A plus, it's only a solid A. That's fine. I won't argue there. Eleven and two Orange Bowl. If I tell you grading on a curve, because I think all these coaches were graded on a curve of like you know what the expectations right. were, what their surrounding situations were. If if I tell you Josh Heupel comes into this situation and, and goes eleven and two. Following Jeremy Pruitt in year two, you all say that's an A plus, right? Now, if you get into the context of well, you blew a twenty point, you blew a game as a twenty point favorite to South Carolina, and you're like, okay, well that makes me mad. I'm going to dock some grades there. But like overall, you'd say it's an A plus. And then yeah, I thought 2023 was a C. Yeah, if you want to say C plus? Okay, fine. Like maybe the Nico Bowl game does bump it up to a C plus. And like if you want to go and like look at the big picture stuff and the, the recruiting. And the, the health of the program, maybe that bumps it up. Maybe get into the B-minus range if you're looking at the big picture of, of like, what you have returning and, like, the way you're set up for this year. Because that's a part of your job, right, is to get your set up for the next year. And, like, Tennessee should be a top-20 preseason team. I wouldn't be surprised if that goes up even higher. Like, I think 17 is where Tennessee was at right. in the first, like, way-too-early poll or whatever. But I wouldn't be surprised if that goes up after, like, spring ball. And, you know, getting the the five-star uh, left tackle in Zaylen's herd, getting some depth, you know, the guy from from Stanford. I think you did a pretty good job in the transfer portal. I wouldn't be surprised if you grab a couple more guys in the transfer portal after the spring. Like, I do think there will be some depth position pieces added, right? Like, I, I would be shocked if Tennessee didn't grab at least one more offensive lineman, a guy that can come in and be just a backup. Not a starter, but a guy that can come in and be a backup. You'll, you'll find a – Fifth or sixth year senior that, that's transferring that can play guard and center and be a backup, if I was guessing. And, like, Tennessee's set up to be a playoff contender. And that matters. That gets judged for my for, for, for Heupel's first three years. What you're expecting in year four matters. So I'd probably go A-. minus. I got no issue with the A. All right, let's bring it home. These are, these are from group of five, and we'll be quick on these, but uh... – the two guys that have just joined Kalen DeBoer's staff, um, Maurice Mo Linguist, from who was head coach at Buffalo for three seasons, fourteen and twenty-three record. He's joining the defensive staff at at uh, Alabama. He graded out as a D. Yeah, doesn't sound great. Now I will say, being a head coach versus running a talented defense, maybe two different things, but. It doesn't scare me no. from the Tennessee perspective. And then Kane Womack uh, from South Alabama, who graded as an F, and it's namely because <laughs> they were saying that he got South Alabama to a place 22-16 and 16 over three seasons. Um, 
is that it's kind of a state of the state in college football right now where you leave a program where, you know, it's a smaller program, you're starting to improve, but maybe he just felt it's too hard. He can go be defensive coordinator with his buddy at Alabama and make more money and likely have more success. Well, yeah, to me, that that's the key. Like, not that it's too hard. It's like it's a better opportunity. Like, yeah. that seems weird. They gave yeah. him an F for establishing a program and then leaving? Yep. See, that, to me, that's that. the exercise loses whenever you're saying that. Like, yeah. <laughs> now, Jed Fish should get a higher grade because he built Arizona up to right. where he can get the Washington <laughs> job. Like, now this guy leaving uh, to go to be a coordinator, that doesn't necessarily scream, like, huge improvements. But, like, 22 and 16 sounds good for South Alabama. I mean, well, yeah. Sounds good. So, speaking of disparity, to close this out, Let's talk about Butch Jones for a second at Arkansas State. Three three re- three season record of eleven and twenty six. Don't tell me the grade yet. I want to guess. Go. I think he's a solid B, minus. Wow. Wow. No. What they give him? C minus. The way bad. they finished the year last year, maybe is weighing too highly because like they were embarrassing the first two years, but they went bowling in year they three. Did. I think that's like a realistic expectation for them. Well, they were in bad shape. Get ready to tune in in September because they uh, traveled to Michigan and Iowa State. Um, I mean, those uh, particularly Michigan, obviously, that's going to be uh, – you might see some uh, some red face behavior from, from Butch in that well, game. Well, the good news for him is it'll never be as bad as it was against Oklahoma last year. So, like, that, that was rock <laughs> bottom. And, and, you know, from that moment, it looked like he was going to get fired, and they rallied and made a bowl game. So I, I gave Butch uh, maybe a B-minus was, again, grading on the curb of also – being at Arkansas State, but also being Butch Jones. And, like, you you looked like you were dead, and now you're okay. Now you're okay. Iowa State, maybe you can get them. Maybe you can keep that one close. They're not any good. Well, we'll see. Yeah. They got Matt Campbell, who's apparently still considered one of the greatest coaches in the country. Well, there we go. Hour one in the books. We'll kick off hour two with some stories you might have missed from yesterday. Stick with us. It's the morning show here on Fan Run Radio. This segment is brought to you by our friends at Inward Half. Check them out today at inwardhalf.com and look for them in your favorite pro shop. I've been telling you, you can support Inward Half. You can support the Volunteer Collective, the Vol Club, by buying their everything polo on the Volunteer Club shop. Joined by our friend Stats by Will, our favorite college basketball expert or favorite Tennessee basketball expert, Top of the morning to you, William. Good to hear from you, boys. Glad to be on. It's a beautiful Friday. It's uh, stopped raining for a minute, at least. So, what a winner you are right now, by the way. You know, we we talked about your Michigan Wolverines <laughs> and their national championship. Congrats on your Detroit Lions getting their playoff win. You know, many people are saying I deserve it, and you know what? I do. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It's it's a thrill to uh, watch this unfold, to see them win more playoff games in a week and a half than they have in my entire life. So, And, and now, you know, now we just need the Tennessee basketball Final Four run. Maybe that's coming. It could. I, I will promise here, if the Lions win the Super Bowl and the Vols make the Final Four, I might have to retire on top from sports fandom. <laughs> How I might, you, might have to become a monk or something. How have you handled this week off of Tennessee basketball? Have you been able to reset? Have you watched more... Uh, other teams across the conference and across the country done some scouting, or have you have you just been self scouting Tennessee? Done a bit of both, a little bit of scouting of other opponents, a little bit of self scouting Tennessee, and 
areas where they could or could not be weak going forward. Uh, I, I will say, you know, watching the Alabama-Auburn game uh, Wednesday, and it's just an obvious one to watch for, you know, Tennessee just played them, and that's a pretty big game. Uh, pretty notable to me that, you know, watching that back, it seemed like Tennessee with, you know, Connect, obviously, but also with Adu, you know, Auburn is kind of seen as Tennessee's main main draw for the SEC title race at this point. Tennessee had a lot easier time scoring in the paint than Auburn did, I thought. Yeah, I mean, Tennessee, we, we haven't talked to you since they had their way with Alabama, but that was about as good of a performance as a Rick Barnes team has had. They, they did whatever they wanted to Alabama. Yeah, which does not happen, especially on offense, really. I mean, when you when you watch Alabama in past years, the, because they play so fast, you see the point score and you think, oh, they must be all offense, no defense. But under Oates, the defense has really been the more impressive unit until this year. And the, the way Tennessee exploited it over and over, I, I, I was a little surprised. I thought they'd use more pick and roll, but they the amount of off-ball action they run that is hard enough to keep with keep up with on its own. And now that they have this extra thing of, oh, by the way, we can run pick and roll really well with a six foot six future first round draft pick. I mean, they are becoming really hard to stop. Uh, pretty obviously the best offense they've had since Grant and Admiral won, were on campus. This offense is better than that offense, though, right? Or, or no? I, mean, I think it's more well rounded. Maybe not better, but more well rounded. I think it certainly can be because you look back at that offense and it was built. And I wrote about this years ago when Tennessee was still taking, you know, 500 mid range jumpers a game. Stats by will.com. <laughs> but uh, that team, if I'm remembering correctly, shot 47% on mid range twos. And at the time when I surveyed that, that was like a, an unbelievable, you know, once in a lifetime marriage of high volume and high efficiency on mid range jumpers. And, this feels more sustainable to me of like they really haven't cracked the code from three yet still sitting at about 34 percent in the season and that's despite guys in this team that we know who can shoot really well not quite you know finding it yet like Ganey found it a bit on Saturday but he's below his career rate we're still waiting on the Vescovy glow up we're still waiting on Josiah's you know tri-annual random six three-pointer game so I still think it's scary because you've already got a consensus top five player in the country and connect. You're already finding it easier to score from two than you have in a long time, but you've potentially still got room to grow on threes. Hey, Will, thank you for joining us. I, one thing I want to give you your props. First of all, I am now a subscriber. I, uh, I joined in because cut the check. Yes, yes. I bullied Bob into cutting the check. Will, you're yeah. welcome. Your your appearances on the radio show have, have at least got you one new subscriber. You know, I, I, hashtag bully Bob. Yes, uh, there you go. Um, but one thing I read uh, going into that Alabama game, and you nailed it, was um, and and it, th- there was a marked difference in how they played against Auburn in this category. But you said it when Tennessee played Alabama that. If you can keep Alabama, what was the number? Was it like under thirty-eight percent from three or something like that? That they're, you know, you're 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 almost certain to win. Well, Tennessee did that and then some. Um, and then I watched them against Auburn, Alabama, that is, and they had a much more proficient game beyond the arc. And um, you know, we see what happens. But um, 
I guess that is a question that, again, gives me more promise with Tennessee, and it's a defensive aspect of it. We're very excited about the offense, but the defensive aspect that they can just apply such pressure, whether it's perimeter defense. Some think that we're maybe a little soft underneath. I'm not buying it. I mean, there's going to be days we're going to be up against tough centers. That's the way it goes. But um, I'd just be interested in your thoughts on on that adjustment that we saw from Tennessee against Alabama because it's almost like they read your uh, your notes. I'd be a little scared if they read my notes. I feel like they've got better things to do. Yeah. But uh, no, I, the, the key with Alabama to me was, you know, for a large port, part of that game really leading into, like, I would say maybe up until the last eight minutes or so when the game was more or less already decided, you saw that graphic over and over of, like, Alabama just wasn't attempting threes. Tennessee wouldn't let them get them off. And it was one of Alabama's lowest uh, three-point attempt rates of the whole year. And I think it just goes to show, you know, again, we talk about the offense a lot. We talk about how annoying it can be to see Tennessee go in some of these scoring droughts. But, you know, consistently night over night, the defense shows up. You know, Alabama got held to their lowest uh, offensive efficiency of the season. That came four days after Florida posted their second lowest offensive efficiency of the season. And, you know, you just go back through the schedule. Like, Purdue's worst offensive performance of the season against Tennessee. Kansas is third worst against Tennessee. Illinois' fourth worst against Tennessee. Wisconsin's third worst. It goes on and on. And, you know, I think when you see Tennessee struggle with those large centers, it it is what it is, and it obviously helps that an SEC play. I mean, really outside of, like, Jani Broom, you're not going to see that this year. The SEC just doesn't have the bruising centers it used to. Um, so to, I mean, like, that helps for that. But even look across the country, Tennessee's probably not going to play many of those because there aren't many of those anymore. You know, the 80s of the world are, you know, for better or for worse, a bit of a dying breed. You don't have that style of guy. They don't make circus freaks in every town is what Will is saying. The big circus freak is only limited for Purdue. Yeah, they only go to Purdue. Matt Painter's got guys going to villages in Sweden or wherever. Yeah, and asking if they found a seven-six guy. Have you seen their next one that's up? He played the other night. Berg. He's a seven-two, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, um, it's, it's coming. It's never ending for them. But if you limit it, it's quarantine. If you quarantine it to one school, it's okay. <laughs> hey, jumping ahead to Vanderbilt this weekend tomorrow, um, mm-hmm. we talked with. Uh, assistant coach Greg Polinsky yesterday, and we touched on this a little bit. I just wanted to get your take on this. That that 5-13 and 13 record, I mean, we've we've all had the position of in the SEC there's no gimmies except Vanderbilt, but is that fair? I mean, are they, they, they hang in on most of their games. They've lost a lot of them. They can't figure out how to win, but it feels like I have not seen, you know, many just epic blowouts in their 13 losses. Well, I, I'm with the opinion that there's no gimmies in SEC play just because everybody has SEC talent, you know. And, and with, with Vandy specifically, I, I would agree they, they're not good, obviously. I don't think that requires much explanation on its own. But the, they're going to have the SEC talent. They take a lot of threes. They haven't hit many this year. But if you're taking the threes in the first place, my thought is you open yourself up to some variance. That can be bad, you know, in the way of getting blown out by Boston College, Arizona State, or even San Francisco. Well, that can be good in the sense of, you know, you hung around with Alabama for a very long time in that game. You almost beat Memphis on the road. 
they they haven't had many of those plus shooting nights, but that doesn't mean they can't. And I think that's where they would open up for them on Saturday. If they come out and they start hitting threes early and often, because they're going to take them, it's the only way they can hang in this game is if they hit a lot of threes. Because otherwise, Tennessee is going to stare down a really bad Vandy defense and run rough shot over them for 40 minutes. If, if Vandy hits threes early and often, that's going to keep this game a lot closer and a lot less comfortable than people want. When we talked with Polinski, I asked him to do a little self-scouting on Tennessee's weakness and what they need to get better at. From what you see with this basketball team, what's the one thing Tennessee needs to improve on the most if they're going to go to a Final Four and win a national championship? I think it's just getting the ball in the hands of the right players from time to time. We've seen, and we have seen this a good bit less this year, I'll admit, versus last, but the possessions where it doesn't feel like the ball goes below the free throw line at all, or the ball doesn't get inside the perimeter before like the eight second mark on the shot clock, those are still cropping up from time to time against SEC opponents. I, I would like to see not just connect, but you know, Ziggler or Jordan Ganey or whoever's got the ball in their hands on the perimeter, let's see some attacking of the paint instead of, you know, we, we saw this a lot last year. Again, haven't seen it as much this year, but sort of standing around on the perimeter and saying, all right, Dalton, let's see what you got, or all right, Zakai, save us. Fewer of those possessions, I think, are really going to help you down the stretch here. If you can have guys who, instead of saying, let me loft up a contested three with three seconds on the shot clock because it's all we've got, guys who attack the paint and say, all right, I'm either going to get a bucket or get fouled here, and I'm going to do it or die trying. I think that is going to help you out more long-term than anything else. Yeah, you hear that conversation a lot in basketball in terms of wanting to get side to side, right? Like flip the court, go from one side to the other, get the defense rotating. You don't really mm-hmm. hear enough talk about getting north and south or, you know, getting below the free throw line, even with drives, you know, getting there. And Zakai's pretty good at driving and keeping the dribble alive and kind of circling around a la Steve Nash and Trey Young. But, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thought that Tennessee needs to get. Maybe not more post-touches, but just also just get the ball around the basket a little bit closer. Yeah, and I think there's a key difference between post-touches and paint touches. Right. Your guards can get you the paint touches. You know, if you want to feed it down to a dude with five seconds left and he's got the the matchup, you're like, I mean, go for it. But if it's, you know, late shot clock and you're a little out of options, I just think there's a bit more upside in driving and attacking versus opting for, you know, a deep contested jumper, even if that shooter is pretty good. Talking with Will Warren, Stats by Will, statsbywill.com. Go subscribe. He's the best in the town. He's the best, for my money, college basketball writer I know. When you came on a couple weeks ago, you said Tennessee needs to get to 15-3 and to win the SEC. Do you still feel like that is the target number? I kind of think it is, at least outright. I think you can still win this league at 14-4, and but it's going to be a shared title. That's and no problem. That, that's, that's no problem. No problem. But, but I do think 14-4 and four opens you up to the chance of, we've seen this just about every year, a team that's not as good as you just gets hot. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we kind of saw that in previous years with, you know, Texas A&M randomly getting to 15-3, and three, or an Auburn team, the Auburn team with Jabari Smith, you know, getting to 15-3 and three despite being the third best team in the league. I just think 15 wins locks you in at a title, and it would take a heroic performance by somebody else to beat you. 
Let's uh, span out. I want to get your take on something nationally. There's this whole concept of some of these conferences that are particularly strong this year um, and, and some that are down. And um, this whole notion, one conference I think sneaky good is the Mountain West. There's mm-hmm. it could be as many as five bids in the tournament for them, you know, and you compare that with conferences like the soon-to-be-defunct Pac-12 and the ACC, who are so far projecting, you know, two and three teams going into March. And I'd just love to get your take in terms of, we all know about the strength of the Big 12, SEC is strong, but a conference like the Mountain West, obviously we saw San Diego State in the Final Four making it to the championship game last season. Um, Do they... They send that many teams. Are those teams that are truly capable of a deep run? Yeah, sure. I, I think honestly, if you get in as an at-large at this point in basketball history, you're capable of making the Final Four yeah. because, I mean, I've seen I think three 11 seeds now make the Final Four just in the last decade and a half. <laughs> so you know, with the, with the Mountain West specifically, they're going to have four teams that are seated around you know like five to eight or thereabouts you know you've got new mexico colorado state boise state utah state all of which are really good and then you've got san diego state who might be the best of them all yet again and this is where i do think you know uh, obviously nothing surprising here i love ken Palm, but i think that it struggles a bit to gauge the real greatness or lack thereof of a conference um because you're counting every team you're not the the, the thing with conferences in my opinion is people correctly only remember the best teams from that conference at the end of the year because those are the teams still playing. You're not going to remember Vanderbilt or Mizzou from this year's SEC. You're going to remember Tennessee, Auburn, Alabama, Kentucky, so on. So, I, I mean, you can make a real argument that the Mountain West is probably the fifth best conference this year ahead of the ACC and Pac-12 just because, I mean, they're going to put in more teams than those two will. And, you know, the ACC might squeeze in a fourth, the Pac-12 – maybe if they're lucky they'll get in a fourth but it's just it's an interesting battle to watch right now where you're seeing these conferences sort of you know come and go and obviously the Pac-12 is gone after this year but with the ACC in particular adding some of these new teams to get to I think 18 but they're not good programs you kind of wonder like does that make you better and does that really make you better and healthier than the Mountain West long term so when you say Mountain West, fifth best conference, so in front of them is obviously what, Big Ten, SEC, Big 12, and then Big East? Yeah, I, I think the Big 12 is still the king this year. They're going to have a good shot of putting in nine teams, maybe even ten. I, I'd go Big 12, SEC, and then I think the Big East and Big Ten are roughly about equal. Stats by Will, give him a follow on X. Go subscribe, statsbywill.com. Appreciate your time. Spoil the Vandy preview. You got Tennessee winning by how many points? I've got Tennessee by 15. I, I, so I, I noticed Ken Palm's got him by 17. I'd be a little surprised if Tennessee covers that. It's just, it's a road game, weird arena. But at the same time, I've seen Tennessee hold Vanderbilt three pointless in my lifetime. So anything is possible. One big. Biggest... And I'm honestly, honestly very curious to see the crowd tomorrow because. Yeah. It's kind of looking from afar like it could be 70% UT. I know a lot of Tennessee fans making the trip. What is the one 
key to the game for Tennessee, the one thing you want to see them do the best? I just want to see them prevent Vanderbilt from taking threes in the first place because okay. that eliminates any variance from this game. So a lot if like you, the Alabama force, game. Yeah, a lot like the Alabama game. If you force them inside, I don't trust a single player on this Fandy roster to score consistently from two. Appreciate your time as always. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Will. Thanks for having me on. Again, that phone call was brought to you by our friends at Inward Half. I challenge you, go buy a shirt or a hoodie and then tell me you're unsatisfied because you won't be able to. Experience the comfort of their signature polos or outerwear or other accessories. They're comfortable. You'll get compliments. Every time I wear my gear, I get many compliments. InwardHalf.com. All right, Sam, what did you learn from that interview, what was your favorite part of it as you were over there taking notes and studying? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was interesting when what he was saying about taking the three ball away from Vanderbilt. You know, I think it is variance is the key word there. Like, yeah. you don't you you don't want a team to get hot, and allowing them to shoot threes, of course, gives them a chance to score more points, and then you know have a better chance to spring an upset. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think it also is just a Vandy team for you know maybe not under Stackhouse, but you know, kind of historically has been a team that's kind of, I think, lived and died by the three a little bit and, you know, has had some strong guards historically. And I think, you know, kind of some of those upsets that you get at Vanderbilt kind of start to happen when you get some of those guards that get hot and they can get those three balls rolling. So I think that was a great point by him in terms of just limiting their production in terms of outside of the arc and, and just trying to, you know, to obviously let it play into your strengths in terms of your defense. Bob, anything stand out to you from from what anything Will said? I, th- I thought what was interesting was him talking about Tennessee's ability to get points in the paint mm-hmm. versus points in the post. Yeah, um, uh, th- there is a difference, right? When you think of it that way, it's not one I think about, but he's right. Um, and this whole notion of kind of guards generating motion and all this other stuff, I uh, and I and I see that with Tennessee now that he puts it out there. Um, that's why I'm glad I subscribed to Stats by Will. I'm glad we successfully bullied you. Yeah. Hashtag bully Bob. But between Jonas and Adu, <laughs> between Jonas and Connect, Jonas is Adu, between Jonas and Connect, I have a lot of confidence in Tennessee being able to get nice points around the rim. Like uh, It seems like Connect can get there almost anytime he wants. You know, I have a lot of confidence in him being able to break down anybody and as as Polinsky pointed out, right or left-handed, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. He can get to the rim on either side, and driving is maybe his best ability. I know we kind of fall in love with the jump shot, and and it's good, it's pure. But to me, what stands out to with him the most is just his his willingness to attack the rim and get fouled and, and finish in traffic. There's something with that left hand take to the hole that's beautiful. You know, it's uh, it's really nice. And then with Jonas, of course, he's gotten really good at just being able to consistently catch and dunk a basketball, which, you know, you might laugh at and say that's easy. But some big man, and, you know, we had some at Tennessee, including just last year with Oros, you can't take it for granted that someone can catch the ball, gather, and get up and dunk without having to take a dribble and get it swiped away. Jonas is really good at finishing the easy shots. You know, he's developed that pretty consistent six-foot turnaround, that six-foot bank shot. And those points add up, and and it helps if you can keep the ball moving into the paint with other guys. Do we miss Euros at all? No, 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 uh, no, that's, no. That's how I feel. I, <laughs> I, uh, 
Bob, what kind of question is that? I don't know. I just. Uh... I mean, as a as a as a human mascot, maybe like as having someone no, like he was he was hard he was hard for me to watch to be honest with you. I just but there's Do some we people. Miss oh you no, man. about Miss Garantano next? No, yeah. no. There's some people who miss him. Sure, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, but it's like I do not. I do not. Um, I don't miss him being around the. I, I don't not miss him being around the program. Like I said, kind of as the mascot and kind of as like, I mean, he was a good ambassador, you know, at least seemed to really embrace being in Knoxville from that. Like he seemed to enjoy being a Vol. Yeah. So from that perspective, sure. Like, you know, watching him in the fur coat at the baseball game. Right. Like he, it seemed like he enjoyed being a Vol. But as far as being anywhere near the basketball court, no, 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 no. I, I don't miss that at all. The goon antics. Like, no, he, he added to a reputation that I didn't think was fair, but that's what started happening around yeah. the country that yeah. w- that we were a bunch of thugs, basically. Yeah, yeah. That, that we were dirty basketball players. Yeah. We did rough up Filipowski or whatever. We, 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 did, we did rough him up against Duke. But that was just kind of a team of grown men going up against some freshmen, and like that's kind of what happened. And and then it backfired. We, 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 we celebrated being tough all week, and then – Went to New York City and then he met got, his match. We got, got out toughed by a bigger European yeah, yeah. guy. <laughs> we, we got punked by a team full of guards. So that was the most disappointing thing. And and I blame I blame Uros for that. So no 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 I don't I don't miss him at all. I, I remember him you know talking trash to Golden Vladimir Golden or whatever his name was, and he just kind of would laugh at him. And and honestly, now you look back, it's like he was right. He was kind of like, oh yeah, just watch, man. Yeah. You know, he he worked him over. Sam, you uh, you miss you miss him at all? No, no, no. Okay, I don't. just check it. Um, <laughs> maybe Kamwa a little bit though. No, no, I miss I, him less. Really? No, no, that's not true. I don't, I don't miss him less. I think you have a decent spot on this team. I don't think he could. And honestly, I don't know if I would trust Barnes to not play him and Jonas together. And I, I and I yeah. wouldn't like that. Yeah, you would have. In my opinion, it's it's kind of a correlation between what we saw with. Heupel and Joe Milton. I think Kamwa would have been getting meaningful minutes that didn't that weren't productive, because that that happened all too much with him. Yeah, like I mean, to me, every shot, every shot that Kamwa would have taken would have been a shot that connects wasn't influencing, and like the the eighteen foot mid range jumpers that aren't basically Dalton Connect, uh, to me, is a waste. His needs offensively might not have fit in well. Right, right. I mean, come walk and play. I think come tournament time, we might be needing a big, another big man, kind of. Well, if you told me that he was going to exclusively play the five and, like, we could have a Walker or Kumwa, like, okay, maybe we have a different conversation then because there probably would have been a, a lineup with Kumwa and Meshack and Josiah that you could have had enough size and defense. Maybe. Maybe. But, again, I've enjoyed having – a top five defense and now a top 20 offense. And quite frankly, the offense is closer probably to top 15, top 10. If you look at just since like the beginning of the year, because we've, we've skyrocketed in terms of efficiency. We were started the year around 40, 50, and now it's up to 20. So like it's trending obviously in a positive direction. And, and again, I don't know if you get there. Like, I don't know if you have the development of Jonas Adu if come was here. And like, I think Jonas Adu to me, is a better, more impactful player than Kumwa just because of what he can do defensively around the rim as well. Like, so I mean, like if I'm having to choose between one of those guys, I think Jonas is every bit as good as Kumwa was last year. No, yeah, if not better. So, yeah, I don't think both could work together. Mine would be more like Kumwa versus uh, Walker right sure, now, maybe. Sure, yeah. Sure. I just don't think both could work together on the court. And sure. I don't. I think Barnes would get enamored with the size and, and feel like Kumwa is good enough to be on the court. 
Tennessee up to three in Ken Palm, by the way. Really? On the heels of that Arizona loss last night, I'm sure that's what impacted it. I think Arizona dropped from third to fifth. Okay. And Auburn moved up to four. Top three balls. Yeah, it's nice. Top three balls. Hour two in the books. Hour three coming at you. It's the morning show here on Fan Run Radio. Is your home... Welcome back to the morning show. Bob Baskerville here with John Reed. Um, we've been talking a lot. This is a big sports weekend in front of us. We have great college basketball games, of course, the NFL Conference Championships, which we were just talking about. So for those who may like to do some recreational wagering on the games, the morning show's here to help. Let's make some money. Yes. Joining us today is Eli Hershkovich the lead sports betting writer, analyst, and podcast host of At The Lines, or At The Lines U.S. Eli focuses on college basketball and the NFL, so he is the perfect guest for what I'm calling a weekend betaway segment. So, uh, Eli, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today, man. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. And, yeah, it's a great weekend for sports betting, whether you're looking at the NFL, your Tennessee balls, or college basketball in general. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so let's talk about that. I mean, I, we would love to get your take on the Tennessee game against Vanderbilt, which is not necessarily a uh, sexy matchup, but uh, but it matters to the folks around here. But also, there are some big games going on nationally in college basketball. So uh, can you break some of that down for us? Yeah, we could start with Tennessee-Vanderbilt really quickly just off the bat from a national standpoint and from somebody who bets on college basketball, Dalton Connect is finally healthy, as you guys well know, after dealing with that injury after the UNC game. And Tennessee's offense has been number one in SEC play. And then you look across the landscape. I mean, tonight, even Michigan State at Wisconsin, pretty big Big Ten game just because Wisconsin is sitting at the top of the Big Ten standings. Auburn, Mississippi State tomorrow. Arizona, Oregon, honestly, a pretty intriguing game just because Arizona just lost outright as an 18-and-a-half-point favorite at Oregon State last night. Kansas and Iowa State, a huge Big 12 game as Kansas is dealing with a lot of depth issues. So a lot of really fun matchups. How long do you think it will take for the line makers to catch up to Tennessee's offense being as explosive as it is? Because from what I've seen, Eli, Tennessee's team total over has been a pretty good bet for most of the year when you're coming off a 91-point game against Alabama, back-to-back 85-point games against Florida and Georgia. It seems like they are consistently outperforming their expectations there. Yeah, and it's as you guys know pretty well, it's the first time really, at least as a better, that you could say Tennessee's offense is playing to the level that its defense is played yeah. in recent years under Rick Barnes. Second-rated adjusted defensive efficiency across college basketball. And to have a pro on this team and a true pro scoring-wise and connect is very big from a betting standpoint. And I think we're going to see it this weekend if it hasn't already. I mean, they're going to be around 17-point favorites at home against Vanderbilt on top of the fact that I would expect their team total to be in the 70 range. And not only is it connect, it's a do too to have a big like that take the leap that he has this season. Jordan Ganey, another transfer that came into the fold. Josiah Jordan James has also been more of a consistent three-point threat for this team. So 
Vanderbilt's an interesting team just because they have given some of their opponents fits this season, whether it's Memphis, who has slumped of late. They gave Alabama a bit of a competitive matchup at the beginning of SEC play. Auburn was more of a double-digit win, 15-point scoring margin. But the big thing for this for this Vanderbilt team is can they space the floor, shooting around 25% from three. So can you keep up with Tennessee offensively, and at least in conference play, that hasn't happened. Getting to the line has been a bit of a liability for Tennessee defensively in terms of allowing their fair share of free throw attempts. So can Vanderbilt slow the game down and within that make their fair share of threes in the half court? That's going to be the biggest question for this game to keep this one within the 17-point projected line. From a strategic standpoint, how do you approach the college basketball season when it comes to future betting? Like, is that something you're constantly looking at and trying to find value in, or are you more focused on the day-to-day, week-to-week of the gambling? Yeah, I usually put down a couple of features at the beginning of the season. It's a good question just because everybody's process is different. I more so take a little bit of a wider approach at the entire odds board when it comes to long shots. I had a... Creighton future going back to the beginning of the year at around 40 to 1. They're now in the 20, 25 to 1 range. But to be honest, I don't like that bet as much as I did going into this sure. season. Maryland, I took a dart at it, 80 to 1. That hasn't worked out. But the one future that has come in a positive sense for me has been Auburn. I got them at 80 to 1. And as you guys well know, they've outperformed expectations and then some projected to be. An upper echelon team in the SEC, but the leap that we've seen from Janai Broom, a top five player arguably in college basketball, and this team is top five in adjusted defensive efficiency, top ten offense, which I definitely didn't expect, but that's the kind of ceiling that you look to grab with a long shot, and hopefully it comes to fruition, and for the Tigers it has. The question is, as we saw on Wednesday night at Alabama, even though Auburn overcame a double-digit halftime deficit, can these guards, can you have a go-to score down the stretch? Do you have a go-to score down the stretch within this backcourt? And Aiden Holloway, while he's had some double-digit scoring performances in conference play, didn't show that against Alabama. And Denver Jones, the FIU transfer, pretty good perimeter floor spacer going back to his mid-major days, but hasn't been a super consistent score, not that they needed him to be, but in that game in particular, I was expecting and hoping to see those guards step up, and that's the kind of output, hopeful output, I'm looking for against Mississippi State to see what Auburn has down the stretch in a close game with this backcourt. Yeah, so let's talk about that with again, you've given some top line of some games, uh, and there's a lot of good ones. If you were to pick two or three games that were like, those are the ones you can, you know, win some money on. Which which ones would you point out? You know, regardless of conference at this point. Yeah, Kansas, Iowa State. I think the Cyclones are going to be around three point favorites, and that's a bet that I would make as a possession favorite at home against Kansas. Now, to your average novice, whether it's better or college basketball fan or just watching Tennessee hoops usually don't want to bet against Kansas, right? A Bill Self team, and you add Hunter Dickinson in the transfer portal. But depth-wise for Kansas, it's been a major issue this season. 
bottom 10 in the country in bench minutes. So outside of their starting lineup, and Kevin McCuller has been awesome. One of the more, uh, a scorer that's made a big leap after transferring into Kansas over from Texas Tech a couple of years ago. But Iowa State, I think, is going to be able to exploit Kansas's depth issues, especially when it comes to ball pressure. And that's been a strength of the Cyclones going back to the last few seasons under T.J. Otzelberger. But they're forcing the highest turnover rate in college basketball. And Kansas has reliable guards, like I mentioned, McCuller more of a wing, but they have one of the better point guards in the country in Dewan Harris. But when you're facing consistent pressure, it's a different story. And then Iowa State, also one of the better offensive rebounding teams, not only in college basketball, but also in particular in the Big 12. And Kansas really struggles to clean up and limit second-chance shots and also keep opponents off the free-throw line, a metric that I brought up with Tennessee and Iowa State. Not only do you get your second-chance shots and get shot creation potential, whether it's threes or twos, but you can get to the free-throw line, obviously, off of those offensive rebounds. So I think Iowa State is able to keep this game into more of a slog, slower-paced game, which is not what Kansas wants to do with Harris and Dickinson. They want to push the tempo. And I would expect Iowa State to win that game by at least a possession. How do you handle balancing like con you know being a content guy doing podcasts you know trying to make people money but also trying to make money because sometimes the most intriguing games you know the the top 20 matchups are not the games with the best you know value you know lower on the board in terms of finding an obscure conference game with an edge where the spreads off a couple of points but it's not one that maybe many people are going to watch or care about yeah it's it's a great question because everybody wants the big matchup. They want to hear, okay, how are you going to handicap this game? Whether it's if we look ahead to the dance in the Final Four, how are you betting both of those games? How are you betting the national championship game? But for me, I make a, I have a college basketball model. That's something that I've built over the last few years and have updated when it comes to different metrics and different variables like that that allow me to make my own projected point spread. So I'm not just looking at the upper echelon matchups like Kansas-Iowa State or looking to bet a Tennessee game, for instance, every single night just because they're a top five, top ten team. Auburn-Mississippi State, same deal. And I get the question marks around Auburn just because they don't have a quad one win yet, so maybe some don't consider them to be in the top ten upper echelon of college basketball. But I'm hopeful that their guards figure it out. But I digress. Yeah, I mean, it's you have to really balance the wanting to find value in what your listeners, viewers are most interested in, and then trying to really dig into, okay, which matchup actually has the most value when it comes to the point spread, even a North Carolina-Florida State game. Now, I know that may seem like the same kind of line of thought with the top five, top ten teams, because North Carolina is in the top five in college basketball and has one of the best guards in the country in R.J. Davis. But to me, that's a defense that's been pretty fraudulent, and Florida State might not be the most intriguing team to your listeners or viewers, but pretty good three-point shooting team when they're on, and we saw that against Syracuse. We saw it in their early season matchup against Florida or against North Carolina shooting over 40%. So you're really trying to dig into market inefficiencies and which teams are over or underplaying to the expectation. 
joined by Eli Herskovich, the Lions US, the Lions.com, trying to make you some money this weekend. He gave you Kansas, Iowa State. It sounds like you like Iowa State in that game, correct? Correct, yeah. Okay. Now let's go to a game and games that a lot of people are going to be watching, a lot of people are going to want to be gambling on. NFL Conference Championship weekend, as we're looking, which game do you find the most value in? Which team do you find the most value in over under? What are you looking at? Yeah, I have a bet on the Ravens at minus three. I got that on the open on Sunday night. So nice. When we talk about, yeah, when we talk about trying to find value, that's the gist of it. And that's not to say you're always trying to bet the opener or when the line immediately comes out, but where you see value, you're trying to get the most out of it. And I, I've been high on the Ravens all season. I have a Super Bowl bet on Baltimore going back to May. Got them at 25 to 1. Nice. So I've been, yeah, I've been bullish on the Ravens' chances to win it all. And when you look at their matchup against the Chiefs, this is a similar, uh, similar line of thinking when it comes to trying to bet maybe the trendy dog, Patrick Mahomes, 9 1 and 1 against the spread. Eight and three outright as an underdog in his career. So I understand the sentiment that Kansas City is going to once again prevail as an underdog. And it's rarely the case for Mahomes that you're not only getting him as a dog price, but getting him above the key number of a field goal, a key number when it comes to NFL betting. But I think the Ravens defense is able to match up well against the Chiefs, whether it's having some bigger safeties cornerbacks to go up against Travis Kelsey in one-on-one coverage, which hasn't been the case against the Chiefs in their last couple playoff games just because the Dolphins and Bills defenses haven't been healthy, to be frank. And the Chiefs didn't have a punt until their last true offensive possession in the divisional round last weekend. And also for the Ravens offensively, they should be able to exploit this Chiefs run defense, bottom 10 across numerous metrics in the NFL, not just in the AFC or within their own respective division. And Baltimore has one of the best RPO run gap schemes when it comes to their ground game in the league. Lamar Jackson, obviously a huge threat to put up a 60, 70-yard performance, but I don't think it's going to be necessarily as much him. I would expect the Chiefs to really center their game plan to stop Lamar on the ground, but you still have some relatively reliable backs in Gus Edwards and Justice Hill and this is a game that I would expect to be a bit more lower scoring than most expect just because of the weather. The total is now around 44. But I think Baltimore wins this game by over a field goal and over four points. So give me Ravens minus four. Now, in your analysis, in your computer models, and everything you just said, I, I did not hear you mention the Taylor Swift effect, though, and that the NFL wants her at the Super Bowl. <laughs> it's funny because the referee in this game is one of the more trendier referees or one of the more notable referees because underdogs have succeeded when Sean Smith is officiating a game. But not only that, he has favored road teams to an extreme degree. So there are a lot of conspiracy theories that the NFL is trying to get Taylor Swift to the Super Bowl and therefore assign Sean Smith to Ravens Chiefs. But you know, I'm kind of hopeful the whole Taylor Swift saga comes to an end. I don't know if you guys are Taylor Swift fans. My fiance likes her songs and likes to listen to her music. But I got to say, I'm hopeful that my Ravens make the Super Bowl just from a betting standpoint. And the Taylor Swift 
storyline comes to a close. I, I got to say, I went to the concert when she came to Nashville. I am a Swifty. I've been converted. I am a, I'm a big Taylor Swift fan now. I got to ask, though, Eli, you told me you had the Ravens 25-1 to 1 in May. Was there any thought about hedging and taking Kansas City and the points? Because, you know, you got good value at this point, and you could maybe have a very easy middle here of Ravens win by three, you win your bet with Kansas City, and also continue to, you know, march forward with that ticket. Yeah, hedging is such an intriguing storyline in itself in the betting space. Yeah, it's something gamblers struggle with all the time. I mean, you want to be greedy, but you also want to lock in some money. How do you do it? When do you do it? It feels like this would be a good opportunity here. Yeah, I am pretty bullish, though, on the Ravens, on my expectations for Baltimore in this game. And I'm also not as high on the Chiefs in the market. So when it comes to projections, I make this game closer to Baltimore, minus five, minus six, which may seem shocking to some, but I'm just not as high on the Chiefs as the market is and as your novice and casual NFL fans are. And I get it. It's Patrick Mahomes, two-time Super Bowl MVP, Chiefs won the Super Bowl last year, two-time regular season MVP. But offensively, this team just hasn't been right and all season because they don't have reliable receivers, one of the higher drop rates in the NFL. And, yes, you have Travis Kelsey, who's dating Taylor Swift, but even he is aging. He could even retire at the end of the season. And that's not to say that that's the sole reason why I'm betting on Kansas City, but Baltimore's defense, they have one of the best defenses in the league, if not the best, under Mike McDonald, who was the defensive coordinator going back to his Michigan days under Jim Harbaugh, now coaching for his brother, John Harbaugh. And uh, when it comes to man-match coverage, Baltimore is extremely aggressive at the line of scrimmage. They run a lot of stunts, and the Chiefs are banged up on the offensive line and have pretty susceptible tackles. So I'm not saying Kansas City isn't going to score three touchdowns, maybe 20 points, but I do think that the Ravens are going to be able to hold them in check, especially their passing game relative to what Kansas City has shown the last couple weeks. Yeah, I agree, Eli. I I think uh, we talked about this a little earlier. The the Chiefs, although winning two playoff games, haven't seen a a healthy defense the last couple weeks, too. And they're, you know, the the one they're going to see on Sunday is uh, definitely at a different level. I have one question uh, about the. the NFC as we start to wind down here, and that is, what's your take from the perspective? Obviously, the the, the Niners are are favored in that game. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about Debo Samuel's availability, and and how much impact does he have from your perspective on a on a line in a game like this? If he if he plays versus not playing, yeah, we saw it yesterday a little bit of movement on San Francisco, and I would say Debo is worth about a point. And that's because the line was kind of flexing back and forth between six and a half and seven earlier in the week, favoring the Niners. And then, like I said yesterday, up to seven and a half. So, and I think that's justified just because what we saw Brock Purdy showcase last weekend. And also, I don't know how much you, and I don't know how much you guys have knocked on Purdy or have took his side or had a neutral stance after that showing and, San Francisco, obviously, one of the better teams in the NFL throughout the season. But there were a lot of naysayers when it comes to Purdy and his performances in the middle part of the season when San Francisco underwent a bit of a lull. I think lost two of three games or something around that number. But I don't, you know, there's, it seems to be this overreaction or 
big time negativity towards Purdy. I'm kind of middle ground here. Just looking back at his performance last week, I'm not super high on the guy. I'm not super low on the guy. I just kind of think he's, you know, you're above average NFL quarterback, especially in this system. And the Lions have outperformed expectations in a huge way throughout the season just because their defense has been extremely vulnerable, especially in the secondary. Cam Sutton and Bill Dorr, their two outside cornerbacks, uh, not taking a shot at Brian Branch, the Lions nickelback. But I think the Lions pass defense is one of the worst in the NFL, and that shows from a metric standpoint, too. Uh, bottom 10 in the league when it comes to passing success rates is just how efficient the opposing offense is. And the 49ers, A, have one of the more reliable offenses despite their lack of sh- lack of showing that against the Packers for much of the game last week. And Brock Purdy also has a ton of success against zone defenses, which is what the Lions tend to drop back in just because they have some unreliable outside cornerbacks. And whether it's Debo Samuel or Brandon Ayuk or Juwan Jennings or Christian McCaffrey out of the backfield, I think the 49ers offense are, is able to have their way against this Detroit defense. And while Jared Goff and the Lions have been praised throughout the season for their offensive success, I think the Niners win that game by more than a touchdown. I'm winning in the over on that game. I'm winning that way just because I do think you're right. San Francisco is going to score a lot of points. But I, I have more confidence in Detroit's offense than I think you do at this point. But maybe that's a lack of confidence in San Francisco's defense as we've gotten later in the season. <laughs> hey, Eli, we can't thank you enough. This was great. Um, we feel a little smarter. We feel like we're ready to go make a little money. Uh, appreciate your input uh, really quickly. Tell us uh, how listeners can follow you. Yeah, you could follow me on X at Eli Herskovich. You could check out my write-ups over at thelines.com. I have Super Bowl previews up when it comes to look-ahead lines. I have a conference championship game previews and some college basketball nuggets uh, later today as well. And you can check out the Lions podcast, one word. Just search for it on Apple, Spotify, wherever you find your favorite podcast. Appreciate your time on the way out. You can just give me one name. I see that you're a DePaul alum. Who do you want to hire for to be your next coach? <laughs> you know, I I haven't fo- followed DePaul basketball closely in years, and I honestly hate the program because <laughs> of some issues I had when I well, covered college okay. basketball. Fair enough. On a on a more reporter level, but Josh Schertz from Indiana State. I'll give you that. I, the, I think offensively, one of the better coaches in the country. Well, that no, we don't want him to be stuck on that dreadful program. DePaul basketball can go to hell per Eli and me because of the way they treated him <laughs> when he covered the team. Appreciate I your appreciate time. appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Eli. All right, Sam, send us a break. We'll wrap up this week of the morning show. Stick with us right here on Fan Run Radio.